From a drug kingpin to a motivational speaker, Sean Atwood's life has seen quite a turnaround. Sean, originally from Widnes, was responsible for smuggling an estimated £4 million worth of drugs, including ecstasy and ketamine, into Arizona in the late 90s and early 2000s. Sean was caught in 2002 and faced a 200-year jail sentence. He avoided it after a plea bargain, serving just six years behind bars. He documented the brutal conditions in a blog and would later become the author of a dozen books looking at his own experiences and other true crime stories. He also is the host of a true crime podcast and his YouTube channel has over 300,000 subscribers. On this week's episode, Sean is joined by his friend and former enforcer, Peter Mahoney, also known as Wildman. Fellow Englishman Peter served seven and a half years in the Arizona jail. This is Helen Wood Chats to Sean Atwood and Peter Mahoney. Hope you enjoy, guys. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in again. Today we have Sean Atwood and his partner in crime, literally, wild man. Tell us, like, where everything started like from a young obviously it's from a very young age and tell us all about yourselves it started in witness where we were born this little chemical manufacturing town didn't it yeah it did yeah and he went to a different school from me i was a bit more studious and peter um was a bit wild <laughs> i got i got expelled at like 13 what for putting a teacher in the bin Pardon? I put a teacher in the bin. What it was, he kept on like sort of picking on me. And as I was coming out of where you get your food, yeah, I was coming out of there, and he stood right near the bins, and he's having a cigarette. And he called me over, and he said, "You haven't got your tires done properly and all that." And I thought to myself, "I'm going to have you." So I just like they have them like big industrial bins where they put all the slop. <laughs> so I just threw him in it. <laughs> I got suspended indefinitely for that. And then they had a private tutor from 9 o'clock to 11. I just did English and math. Mm-hmm. And then I could go home. And then um, I ended up going to all the other schools around me and getting into fights and stuff. So I actually got expelled. I left school in would have been the fourth year. Right. So what age was that? That's like 14, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Okay. And his what about o- his you, oldest brother was the head of our little street gang called The Sweats. We'd watched... The Sweats? We'd watched... (laughs) Sounds nice. We'd watched a lot of um, American street gang movies, like The Warriors and The Wanderers. So we were The Sweats. And he wouldn't let Peter join the gang, and he picked on him. Oh. So I eventually splintered off from them and hung out with Peter. Right. And then we formed our own alliance... Just you two? Yes. Let's get to it. Where did the... So you it was stocks and shares, weren't it? Was it? Well, I started following the stock market when I was 14. And yeah. my teacher was, like, explaining the Financial Times, all that stuff. 16, I asked my mum and dad for some money to invest. Because Maggie Thatcher was privatising these companies. And they told me to bugger off because they were Labour supporters. And they were like, we're not Tories like, you, like your nan. Who do you think we're asking us for money for Margaret bloody Thatcher? So I thought, all right, my nan. Hit my nan up. She gave me 50 quid. Doubled it right away in BT shares. And that was it. I was hooked. At the top of our town, there's a quarry called Peck on Peck's Hill. 
and there's a tree overlooking this quarry. So me and Peter and his cousin Hammy, we go up this tree and we call it the thinking tree. And we sit there and uh, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go to America, make a million in the stock market, fly you guys over. And that's what happened. So you're what age now when you're talking about this? You're, what, you're still in your teens, are you? Yeah, I'm, um, I'd be 20 now. 20? Yeah. Because I went to prison when I was 21. Right. What was that for? Street robbery. Right. And I, I did two and a half. And I got out and Sean said, look, do you want to come over? Because you just got to... Oh, that was it. I'd been out six months and um, I got caught up in a GBH and broke the guy's jaw, put him in hospital for a while. So I was up for Crown Court and Sean said, do you want to come over? Because you just got to get sent down again. So I did a flight. I just... I said, I'll tell you what, I'll come over to stay out of trouble. Famous last words. When you're saying flying, so is this when you're in Arizona, is it? So I went to Arizona in 1991. Right. I'm working as a stockbroker, glorified telesales. Your family lived there as well, didn't you? You had aunties in Arizona, yeah, is that right? Yeah, aunts and uncles, that's how I went out there. Like my aunt, when I was a kid, when I was 16 actually, she changed my date of birth in my passport so I could go nightclub in Arizona. So I was 21. What a sick answer. And then, cool, she, and then she's in, <laughs> yeah. introducing me to all these beautiful American women as Paul McCartney's nephew. No! Yeah. Oh my God, go on. So, so can you imagine the effect that had on me coming from Witness, Arizona, plane landing, swimming pools in all the backyards, sun's out, they hear the English accent, they roll out the red carpet. They're a bit thick, the Yanks. They think, do you know the royal family? Do you know such a person? I met him once called Bob. Have <laughs> <laughs> you had tea and crumpets with the Spice Girls? <laughs> in prison later on, guards and prisoners, some, asked me what language do they speak in England? What? Yeah. So I was dazzled by Arizona coming from Witness, like this sunny place where they hear the English accent and you're in. And um, in your element, wouldn't I'm you? I'm thinking, right, when I finish uni, I want to come out here and get some of this. So that's what were you what doing I did. at uni? I did business studies at Liverpool Uni. Right, okay. And that was our primary raving days in Liverpool and Manchester was like late 80s to 91. Right, tell us about the raving days. That's what we want to hear about as well. In the beginning, me and Peter were just driving around Liverpool. And what was that one we went to? Well, at first we went up there and we were shirt and tied up. We did go, we used to go raves at first. We used Mr. To go, Smith's in Warrington. We used to go Mr. Smith's in Warrington. And then in Liverpool, Coconut Grove in Toxteth. And then we used to go to um, grab a granny, didn't we? Gra what was it called, that one? Grafton. The Grafton. <laughs> so we started off going places like that. And then we were going home and we went past the warehouse in Beaumont Street and we heard this music. So we went to see what it was, and it was basically these two big black guys, and they had that Tesco carrier bag or an Asda bag, and you put a tenner in it, and you'd go in. And it was an old scrapyard, but they were doing like a, a rave, an illegal rave. So we were there, and we didn't have no, no drugs or anything. We thought, we like this, we're going to come back here again. And it got cut short because the police couldn't set the dogs on us, but everyone got off. But the next week, we went 
we drip, got some new claws because we looked a bit shady, really, in suits. Do you know what I mean? We looked like coppers. <laughs> Why were you at a Ravens? Oh, no, you didn't plan to go. Yeah, for I know, it was just starting. Care. Right. And everyone before the scene, you had to line up with your shoot, shirt, shirt and tie on or whatever suit. And the bouncers would come out and maybe they'd let you in, maybe they wouldn't. And the young people got sick of it and just started breaking into warehouses and wearing what the hell they wanted. That's how it started. I was trying to picture you two in like in a suit in a rave. <laughs> <laughs> but the first clubs we went were Thunderdome and Conspiracy in Manchester, weren't they? Conspiracy, yeah. Oh, I've never even heard of them. And Sound Showing your age now, boys. I don't know. Thunderdome was on Oldham Road. Right. Dodgy as hell, wasn't it? Was very so, dodgy. Big Salford crew in so there. So what music was that now? Was that like like heavy like techno and stuff like no, that? No, it was Acid House. Like and acid it was like, oh, yeah, it had, had the lyrics. House, yeah. So can you nice remember? Nice woman's voice, like sunshine on a rainy day. Yeah. That type of music. Right. Were you, take, were you obviously taking pills and stuff when you started going to raves and things like that? Yeah, we first talked, we were like that, shall we, or shan't we? We met the local dealer, just outside. And at the time, they were like £25. They were like, Big brown disco biscuits. We had one and we thought, oh, that's brilliant, that. Your head's just like that, you start bobbing and you, all you hear is stand up. And you went, oh, yeah, it's cool, isn't it? It was just like, it was a love fest. Cause I used to go, I used to like going to football, I used to like going to rugby and used to have a lot of violence there, fighting and that. But all that, all the fighting thing changed. You'd see people from like everywhere, what, used to be enemies oh I love you bro I love you too bro you started obviously dabbling in like taking stuff and whatever when did you kind of then get into the whole industry of well that like, took a long time because I was working as a stockbroker for, for like five to seven years right Peter was in England for that period of time I was selling weed and speed and I'm thinking right if we get into Arizona he can come out here and be a wrestler I was a bit idealistic so I've got him a flat right next to the Georgian Dragon British pub in Central Phoenix. Right. Thinking he'll just go in and have a bevy with the fellas from England, the expats. Yeah. Get him a job as a wrestler and we'll live happily ever after. Me and my bird show up at the flat a couple of weeks or months into it and we knock on the door and a bunch of Mexicans answer the door and I say, where's Peter? And they're like, what? I said, where's Pete? He lives here. They got pizza. There's, no one, we don't want pizza. No, Pete, he lives here. And then they all just pull guns out. And the Colombian guy who's the boss, who's a crack dealer, comes out. He's got his gun out. They're like, you know, who, who are you looking for? And we're backpedaling across the street thinking we're about to get a shot. Peter walks over the road, smiling, goes, um, oh, don't worry about them, la. That's the local Colombian crack lord, and they're these Mexican salesmen. And I've rented my apartment out to them because they like to move around a lot and they're buzzing because I can smoke a hundred dollar crack rock in one breath. Where we were actually living, it was majority Mexican community, and it didn't really wake up till it was like something from dusk till dawn. It was like literally about two o'clock in the morning, it'd come alive. It'd be like afternoon at two o'clock in the morning. People would be out just smoking crack and stuff. Did so you smoke crack? Yeah. The first time I tried it was there and oh, I loved it. It was absolutely brilliant. You know what I mean? I didn't get hooked to it. You didn't get hooked on no. it? No. 
Because you first... Which is so good because it's such... A, it is, like, really addictive, isn't it? Well, your first rock's really good rock, really. There's no point in chasing it. That's the time you get that high. After after that, you're just chasing it. Yeah. So there's no point. So, But I used to do a really big, fat rock. Like, almost make your heart stop type of thing. Jesus. It was hospital, hospitalised a few times. Yeah. So go on. You've ended up with... What were they like? The lo- local, like, crack, like... Yeah, so they're, they're the local dealers around there, and you'd see cars pull up and they'd pick up and all that. And I got talking to them, they really liked my accent, and they were saying they are looking for somewhere to stay, and I said, well, yeah, I'll show you the place. So I showed them where I was at, and they said, yeah, we'll take it, we'll take it, whatever you want. So I went over the road to, like, a guy that I'd met, and I said, listen, it's all right if I stay with you for a couple of weeks, I said, I'll sort you out with some crack and some crystal. Say, oh, yeah, but yeah, you're welcome, English, you're welcome. Well, they used to call me also at the time, it means Burr. So, go over there, and I went over, arranged the price with him. It was basically as much crack as I wanted, and $100 a week. So, I thought, I'll rent it, I'll, I'll sub it to these. I forgot to tell Sean. <laughs> Like you do. <laughs> yeah, I just nearly get shot. <laughs> I didn't think you'd mind, like, you know what I mean? That's like you think, oh, it's enterprising, really. So what what happened from there? Did you obviously just, so you found this out and it's just become the norm that this is happening? That was just the beginning. Yeah. So this, would you say this <laughs> that is was where mild. it's... Is this where it started? <laughs> like, this started to unfold everything else? Because you're still working as a stockbroker at yeah. this point, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. In the end, the... The, the, the crack dealers had to move on. They only stay there for about five, six weeks and they've got to move on because the police will come otherwise. Right. So um, I, moved, I moved back in my place and it was brilliant because a lot of them were paranoid. So I'd, like, I'd put my hand down the sofa like that and there like big rocks of crack. They'd stash the drugs because they were that high, but they forgot to stash them. Cut a long story short, I had a party and some guy come over, shot himself in the head. He's laying half in, in the flat and half out the flat. The police come, take me down, the homicide squad come, take my passport from me, to do an investigation. It come back as suicide and uh, give me my passport back. But after that, I didn't want to live in that flat. I wanted to move yeah. somewhere else. So basically the apartment rented him. He started out rent, renting it off with a, to a Colombian drug lord and it ended with a corpse on the doorstep. So we relocate him to this apartment on the west side. I think they're behind in their rent or something. So I put down some money for it. The steroid head bouncer, perm herd cowboy, says he's a tough He's a tough guy. He's in there with these two women. And, um, he, you know, he, he's like talking all this tough stuff, this guy. And I'm thinking he's probably going to get purified by the wild man if he keeps talking like that. And he, told, he told me to do the dishes inside you up after myself. So put his head through the wall. Literally got his head and just smashed it through the wall. And he went running out with no like that plaster of Paris all over his head. So I just put down like a thousand pound deposit to house Peter in this place. Right. So I call up the uh, apartment manager and the apartment manager says, we're going to have to evict Peter. And I said, why? She said, because he's, put his roommate's head through the wall. And I said, did you see, I said, did you see him putting his roommate's head through the wall? And she said, no, but he was seen 
running through the apartment complex with plaster all over his head and face, screaming for people, someone to help him because he'd been assaulted. Did somebody somebody to tidy up again, though? Fortunately, Pete had done this so quickly within moving in, they hadn't cashed the cheque. And I was able to stop it. it. I was able to stop it, yeah. Right. So you've got your grand back. The two girls that he was living with, one of them is dating a guy in Tempe, Arizona, who's behind on his rent. So Wildman moves there next, and this becomes the hub then for the beginning of the criminal enterprise. This is where we meet all our people, like Russian mafia, Mexican mafia, everyone through this. this. Fascinating. Yeah. Come on, what happened? Where well, we actually moved to, it was brilliant. It was like a um, college apartment. So it was just like full of college people. Like University of um, Arizona, Arizona State University. Right. Yeah. It was like two doors away for me. There was like cheerleaders it was just, and they were all getting high. And it was just, I mean, it just made sense to sell drugs there. Go on, tell us about the, like the people that you've met and when it all started, when did it kind of start to... So this apartment um, is owned by a guy called Crybaby Joe. He gets in debt with me. Crybaby Joe gets in debt with me. He's, he's trying to sell pills and stuff. So Wildman just takes over the place then, starts to sell off all of his furniture. And there's holes in all the walls and the ceiling. And he just starts throwing his own parties and inviting everybody over from like street people, Native American transsexuals, Russian mafia, Mexican mafia. And it just became this nonstop party place. And everyone just got on. Everyone got on. It's like this. When I was a young person in my teens, I was a bit shy and anxious till I got on the ecstasy. But Peter would talk to absolutely anybody. And that carried through into later in our lives. He opened all the doors for me to meet certain people. So you've got all these people in your life now. You, you said before, like, your people. When you say your people, were these people that, start, that started working for you? Or, like, where did all the... Misfits. We yeah. were a bunch of misfits who formed a crime family. Right. Not a traditional crime so family. This was ecstasy, wasn't it? It was the rave scene. There were people from all walks of life, odd people, and um, we became a really tight unit. When you say, like, misfits, who was in the group? Obviously, I'm not saying names, but, like, what kind of people? They ranged from Brainiac, Arizona State University students, like the rabbit, like certain other people. To, go on, you want to expand? From university people to black gangsters, Antoine and stuff. Yeah. My um, top sales guy, when I first met him, he was homeless and, and smoking crack. And he, you know, I ended up get, helping him get a house and everything. He'd be moving like 10,000 pills. He was, he did his wrong though in the end, didn't he? In the end, there was a fallout between him, Skinner and Peter that caused some problems. So this new place is your new hub. Like yes. Rancho Murrieta becomes the so hub. So how the hell did you end up selling like the amount that you did on the scale? Was it like, for, I read four million pounds worth or something. We're having these parties that I've described and we can get about a hundred pills from the local dealers. And they're going like that. And I'm seeing the business potential of it now. So I find out that they're getting them from LA. Me, and Peter and Seth and Acid Joey, and Seth and Acid Joey are dead now. We all go out to LA and um, we're parked outside this surfer gangster's house waiting for him to come home to, to get these pills. And he, he comes in, I go in on my own. 
those guys are like my backup outside. I've got all this money on me, like, I don't know, 10, 15,000. I'm thinking, am I going to get robbed? You know, with the cops watching this place, what's going to happen? And he, he goes into a back room and he comes out with the biggest bag of ecstasy pills I've ever seen in my life. Like a thousand Mitsubishis or something like that. So I say, all right, can I try one? He goes, do you want me to get you a drink? I'm like, no, nah, I'm just going to chew it because I know what the taste of ecstasy is. So I just chewed it and it was a good pill. And that was it. We, we all dropped pills, drove back and got to his place and they were, they were gone in the weekend. They were all sold. So I'm thinking, do I want to keep working the stock market, working these long hours? What did you hours? make from that, from selling them? Do you remember? Um, all right. So this was before it was like those multiple levels of the sales dis- distribution uh, channels. I was just doing it on my own on this experimental basis. So I bought those for about, I don't know, about $12 a pill. And they were going anywhere from 20 to $30 a pill, depending on how much people bought. So I doubled whatever the money was in a weekend. Well, I just continued to build it up, the criminal enterprise, with the connections Peter had helped me establish. So Peter was my main protection as well. But he did introduce me to some tough people. Right, okay. Including, um, we'll just say a Mexican-American person, because he's got a bit paranoid about us uh, saying saying stories about him. Okay. Yeah, who was connected to the Mexican mafia, the new Mexican mafia who, who became, uh, uh, I, I got into business with them as well, yeah. How do you just get into business with somebody like that? What, people like At Rancho Murrieta, there was a series of parties that we had and the Mexican-American person would come over and um, he was dealing coke and weed and I was dealing the E. And at one of these parties, a policeman just walked into the room and the policeman who walked into the room said... I could smell weed from outside, nobody moved, goes to grab his radio like he's going to call it and have us all arrested. So the Mexican-American guy just pulls out his gun, points at the cop, says, the only one who's not leaving is you, M.F. Everybody run. So we all run off into the night and we're thinking we're going to get arrested. I go to a nearby apartment. We're like, should we flush our drugs? What's going to happen? The cop's going to come. There's like a helicopter coming. There's police sirens and everything. And I was like, bam, 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 knock on the door. Let me in. It's, it's him. We'd pull the gun on the cops. He says, don't open the door. Turn the lights off. Turn the TV off. If they've not got a warrant, they can't come in. If they knock on the door, don't answer it. And that's what happened. Yeah. And at the end of the night, he goes, because you and your friends protected me, me and my brothers have got your back. So months later, I go over to the house. There's all these lowriders on the street. His brother answers the door. And he's looking up at me and he's like, here's my English accent. And he goes, damn, you talk funny, homie. <laughs> Like you, you, I guess you are from England. Come in and meet my homeboys. So I go in the living room and they're all in there. These massive tattooed Mexican-Americans have all got the chains on, little wife beater vest, shorts down below the knees, all the prison tattoos, all kinds of weapons, slabs of coke, slabs of crystal meth, weighing machines. And I'm looking around the room. It's the biggest TV I've ever seen in my life next to a little TV with CCTV showing everything on the road. So they're looking yeah. out for the police are coming. Yeah. But I do a double take when I look at the TV. I'm like, hold on a minute. I've seen one of them before. It's got a rocket propelled grenade launcher on top of the TV. Oh, what? Rocket propelled grenade launcher. It shoots. You can put a missile in it and shoot down a helicopter. Like a bazooka. Oh my God. And I still didn't know who they were. And I was in business with them for years. And it was only when I took the Mexican-American guy back to his brother's house years later, the whole neighborhood was blacked out and the police were out directing traffic with light ones. 
And they were all getting brought out in, in handcuffs by a federal SWAT team and it showed all the pictures on the news and that said who they were then. And that's how I knew who And they that's were how then. you found out? That's when I found out, yeah. Well, how did you get caught? What the hell happened? And, and tell us about prison there, life. There was abroad. witness statements. There was the fallout with Wildman and Skinner. Skinner became the main police informant. There was 10 informants. He fell out with Wildman. He became an informant. May 16th, 2002 was the first SWAT team arrests. He was scared for his life, apparently, because um, I was going to kill him. He had some black gangsters he was hanging out with, and he formed, uh, there was like a conspiracy, whereby, while woman's apartment, while Peter was in uh, federal uh, immigration deportation prison, Wild Woman's apartment was firebombed. And then these the black gangsters showed up to take Wild Woman to safety. And she's like, I ain't getting a car with you with all my pills. And we later found out that Skinner had orchestrated the whole thing. Firebomb comes right through the window, almost sets her on fire. So Peter's in deportation and Skinner's thinking he's never going to get in, back in the country. So I hire a lawyer to expedite the process, get him out and fly him right back, smuggle him right back in again. So he's come back in. He's back in and now Skinner's terrified. At the time, we weren't even getting on, but I was still fuming because yeah, to me, it was like it was it was like a direct finger up to me. Do you know what I mean? So Skinner snitched and left town. Wildman was waiting for him in his apartment that he'd abandoned, and my friend Joey Crack, who's also dead now, showed up, and Wildman almost thought it was Skinner coming in. I think I had a baseball bat at the time. So I I, I know it's all got too heavy, and I've quit the importation. Right. I'm, just, I'm just chilling out in an apartment in Scottsdale with my bird. And May 16, 2002, I'm on the computer. I'm back to doing stock trading. And it's like, bam, 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 on the door. And it's a SWAT team. And they came for Peter as well. So all simultaneous arrests. Yeah, they arrested all of us in, in the same day. What was, what was your day of arrest like? Oh, it was horrible because, well, I just took a massive big hit crack. And like, I'm like, oh, and then I'm hearing this bang, bang, bang on the door and I look and it's the police. And I just opened the door. I went, oh, it's the police. And shut the door again. I thought, oh, shit, it is as well. So they said, they had the like, guns out and all that. And my house had a gate. They knocked the gate into the front, like, into the hallway. They come in. And then get on the ground, get on the ground, shouting, bawling. They put the gun to you. Hands behind your back. They cuff us and put us in a van. And didn't, know, didn't tell me what for, didn't say anything. Just basically just took me... Uh, is, this what happened, is, is this similar to what happened to you as well? Yeah, we go to Tempe Police. We've got this mobile unit where we all get booked into there. We go to Tempe Police Station. But then we enter, the, at the night time, they transfer us all over to Sheriff Joe Arpaio's Madison Street Jail, the Maricopa County Jail, which has got the highest rate of death and, and mayhem in the whole country. And this place is like off the hook. Well, fortunately, I got arrested with Peter. He's, you know, look, I mean, look at the size of me. <laughs> Peter's a good guy to get arrested with. So you knew where you were heading for. Did you act, Did you know about the reputation of the jail then? Well, Peter had been in the, the horseshoe before and he told us what it was like. Yeah, I'd been arrested a couple of times and only did the odd week or two of those. I think the most did was 12 weeks. So I knew what we were heading for. I didn't know how much time we were heading for. Yeah. But I knew where we were going. 
And I would quit. I mean, everything's an adventure to me. So what happened? Did you get, were you sentenced quickly? Well, our first year we are together and I'm fighting it for um, 26 months, but they boxed me off in the higher security levels because they say that we are influencing the co-defendants. Right. We're telling them not to sign plea bargains. So then they like, they want to get, Peter goes off to prison. They get me away from everybody. They separate you two. Yeah, yeah. They, they can basically put a thing on you, do not house together. So they keep you all yeah. separate. So I'm like in, I'm, I'm locked down for a lot of it. But Peter, as soon as he got to the, the prison after a year in the jail, the Aryan Brotherhood guys come up to him and ask him what his charge is for. And he had a bad day. So there was a situation arose. And, but, and, basically, and these guys decide to live and die in the prison system. Yeah. Everyone cows down to them, usually, except for him. What's with all the bad stories about me? <laughs> I went over there to stay out of trouble. I went, I went from, I would have only done two years if I stayed in England. From, I thought I'd run away and end up doing seven and a half. Is that how long you did? Day for day, seven what about and a half. You? What about Tried you? to get him a job as a wrestler. And Look now, what happened. I got, I got, um, I got sentenced to nine and a half years. I got the lawyer that the New Mexican Mafia recommended I got. He got me um, a loophole whereby as a first time non-violent drug offender, I would only have to do six. Right. So, so by, that was, by that, reducing that was being my, let off easy, was it, doing the nine and a half? I feel that... Um, if I hadn't got that lawyer, I'd still be in prison because I was, I was we, right away they put serious drug offender status on us, which carries 25 to life. And then, and then in my second year, when I wasn't signing the plea bargain, they said, right, you've got, to, they, they doubled my charges, they doubled my bail. Uh, I had 20 plus charges and they said, maximum 10 sentence on each, go to, go to trial, we'll give you 200. And I saw a guy before me, he refused to sign a plea bargain for 15 and they gave him 200. I couldn't get my head around my plea bargain because it was, no less than five, no more than eight. I thought, well, it's not really plea bargain, is it? Either way, I'm going to do some time here. But then I thought to myself, well, I'm gone. I've been in the county now for like 14 months. Mm. So, and I'm still thinking it's like over there that if it's under five, yeah. you do half or whatever. Anyway, I went to court and they gave me seven and a half called me a menace to society and was going on and on and on. I stood up and I said, listen, that's fine. I said, listen, but we've got arrested too. Wow, woman. Wow, woman. I said, listen, why she's actually here, it's not her fault she's done, done anything. I brought her over here and I wouldn't give her a passport, but I said, so whatever time you're going to give her, you might as well give it to me because I'm going to do seven and a half anyway. Mm. I don't think she should do any time. And they said, it's very... I don't know, they used a big word of me. But basically said it doesn't work like that. She's got it because she had 153 charges herself. What wild woman did? Yeah, yeah. she had the most charges than everyone because she'd actually, she'd pick the phone up and do, do, ah, right, do, yeah. do deals. Okay. And every time anyone called, the, the phones would tap. So she's every, like linked Every to call all was that. a charge, yeah. yeah. Tell us about prison life. So you two are separate at this point. We could like communicate a little bit through the British Embassy's legal mail. I would hear that one another's doing. How the how would you hear that? Just from all the prisoners coming in. Oh right, okay. Because after the while it's a great vine, isn't there? Yeah. Did you make a good network of friends in there? 
Oh, was that friend? He was running it. Away? Give him, give him the building to I'd, run. I'd, I'd, the whites give me the building to run for the whites. When you say run, what does that entail? What do you have to do? Well, basically, all the new guys would come in, the young lads and all that. Yeah. You have to sit down, talk to them, tell them what, stay out of trouble, give them the rules. Um, Which are like don't sit on another race's bed, don't break bread with another race, like. Don't start eating with them or anything like that. Don't disrespect another race. Shower often. Keep yourself to yourself. Stay out of trouble. Because what the young lads do, they'd have a few beers or they'd get on hooch and they'd start... Oh, and a big main one was when you're singing, don't listen to rap. Because you'd have white guys going around there and they'd be singing and they'd be listening to, like, black hip-hop. A lot of them, they're their own people, say the N-word... But you got a white guy singing, and he's saying it, and he's saying the word, and yeah. you're gonna, it's gonna cause a riot yeah. straight away. So that was a no, that was a rule not to listen to it. That was yeah, it was a no no. You get smashed on site for listening to it. Right. So you'd give these instructions, rules to people. I give these instructions to real, yeah. At first, I started off with just having one pod, and there's eight pods in the building, and after a while, and each one of them always like a hundred prisoners. It's like big domes. And um, I ended up running all six of them. So I'd have, I'd have in each one of them, I'd have a white guy, and he'd come to me weekly, and tell me who's in debt, who's staying out of trouble, whose birthdays it is, and stuff like that. Because any of the white guys would sort of birthday, we would make like a big feast. So did you not deal with the other races? Am I right in thinking you yeah. just dealt with white people? Oh, yeah, no, no, I didn't tell the other races what to do. Right, okay. But I dealt with just the weights. Right, okay. Every race has those rules. Uh, right, it's so they are, they are like, it's like a hierarchy in each race. Yeah, right, and if, okay. if there's problems with other races, the head would come and see me directly. Right, ah, uh, yeah, okay. But we wouldn't, we'd never fall out over it. We wouldn't, me and the other heads would take It was just like a personal. structure thing to keep the peace. It was just, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Because yeah. if there's a fight with a white and a black, and then there's a riot... All the prison gets locked down, and there's no drugs coming. Then in. the drugs business stops. The absolute priority of the gangs is to keep the drugs business going. What about you, Sean? What was what what was it like for you? Well, when I first went in, um, I was terrified. Oh, I seen stuff like Shawshank Redemption. You're so different. Like you are so different, you two. Even though you're like, well, they split. They put me in Tower Six right away, and they put him and my co-defendants in Tower. What was it in the four? Four. So I go in. No, I've been in the horseshoe for two or three days without any sleep. And then these skinheads come up to me. It's like, hey, we want a word of you, you know, get in this cell over here. Oh, my God. So I go into this cell at the back. They close the door. Biggest one gets in my face. He's like, what are your charges? What are your charges? Now, your charges on a little printout that they give you in the horseshoe. It's all legal terminology. I, I was new to this. Conspiracy, crime syndicate. I, I didn't fully understand what it meant. So I said, I don't know what my charges mean. And that is not, that's not. He, he knocked the guy out who asked him what his charges were. And that's how he got that job. So I'm like making a right mess of this now. Now they've got me against the wall about to attack me. What do you mean you don't know what your charges mean? Are you a chomo? Are you a chomo? I don't even know what a chomo is. No, I don't know what the hell is. Chomo's child molester. Yeah. So some charges. That's what you thought you were. Some charges are KOS, kill on sight. Right. right away, they will kill a child molester if he gets into that population. In the end, they made me pull out my charge sheet 
They saw us in for drugs. They were buzzing off the bail because the bail bond was $750,000 cash only. So they were like, God damn, what did you do? Who did you kill? And I was like, no, raves, ecstasy. We, we didn't kill anybody. And one of them was like, well, I shot a guy in the chest at a rave. I was high on GHB and I'm here for attempted murder. So um, fortunately what happened was they were going to check, they were checking me out, right? They didn't, they, 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 they didn't trust me. And um, they found out he was in Tower 2 and they found out there was a load of us. And then when we went to the church, we were all on the back row hugging and word just completely spread throughout Tower's jail. And no one messed with me once they knew I was with him. So what was the worst thing you saw in the whole of your prison experience? I'd have to say the black lad hanging. And that was probably the worst thing to actually wake up and see. And to see it, yeah, yeah. right in front of you. What about you, Sean? Just people getting, um, looked like they were dead, carried out on stretchers, like not just blood coming out of their head, like yellow fluid coming out of their head, like brain stuff. What? Every day, every day, in the, in the jail, because it's people coming in and out, all on crystal meth. It's crazy. Heads getting bashed against toilets, bodies getting thrown around. I saw people's teeth just flying out. I saw a guy with his leg pointing in the wrong direction. I saw a mentally ill old man who wouldn't stop rambling. The gang decided to shut him up. And as I walked past him, blood just squirted right out the back of his head. So I saw so much stuff, I can't even remember it all. It was, it was, it was, it was constant. It was constant in the jail. Just like you could become immune to it. It's like you just got... Well, like I said, I was crapping it when I went in and people were coming up to me saying, you got to get that, that look off your face, that nervousness, or else you're going to get smashed. Yeah. Six months in, I've got dead eyes. And even when I got out, I got my driver's license. I've just looked like that, like completely unemotional. So how long have you both been out for? I know I got released in December of 2008. And oh, you got out in 09, didn't you? Yeah, I got sent down in 02. Yeah. Got out you got out, yeah. 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 Is it, are you both clean when it comes to what you're doing? Is this like, so you've come out and you're on the road to being straight and... I drink probably too much. I smoke Rocky, smoke a joint now and again. Yeah. But I don't do no speed, don't do no coke, I don't do no E. don't do anything like that. And is it just a case of, you, you're you both going round, aren't you, doing... The chats and the motivational, but is it mo? Which is, it is motivational speaking, isn't it? You can call it that. Talks to young people and adults yeah. across the country. Yeah. What are you? What are you teach? What are you telling kids when you're going into school? I don't do them, mate. You don't do them. Well, I can't. Can I? I can't hardly have a joint and say, "Listen, don't do drugs." So, Sean, what about you? So, you're going into schools. You've got a book. You've you've done more than one book. I've got thirteen you? books out right now. Thirteen. Yeah, my life story is a trilogy. It's party time all the naughty stuff we did. Hard time is the jail. And then prison time is sentenced and then return home. Wow. So I just go in and tell them, here's my story. Yeah. I don't go in and say drugs are bad for you and if it's stupid like that. I just show what happened to me and the consequences and emphasize, you know, how dark it was in How in, do the kids react jail. when you're talking about it? Well, do you think it's benefit? Obviously, you're gonna think it's beneficial because you're carrying on doing it. Speaking of range of schools, from inner city schools to like Stowe School and Westminster. Yeah. And as soon as getting to the jail, conditions on the edges of the seats, dead rats in the food, the cockroaches crawling all over us at night, the guards murdering prisoners. Is that why you prisoners. don't eat meat? I don't eat. I'm a veggie because of the dead rats in the jail food. Yeah. Oh my god. The Red Death, Mystery Meat Slop. That occasionally had a dead rat in it. 
One time we gave a rat back to the guards. We complained. They said they'd investigate. Came back later in the day and said, jail won't get any trouble. Said it was just a potato. Oh, my God. With eyes and a tail. <laughs> <laughs> so all, all this has led, um, you know, to me becoming a speaker, to me and Peter doing all these videos on the YouTube channel. Yeah. Doing talks to adults. And it's massive, isn't it? It is big what you've done, like your, your, your podcast, your YouTube and stuff like that. Yeah, we just got a shout out from Joe Rogan and Eddie Bravo. And, um, Joe Rogan, that's massive. Yeah, yeah, so that was really, really, really helpful from those guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Good. Future-wise, so you're doing your motivational chats, you getting bigger and bigger, like, on YouTube and stuff. What's Have you got some kind of, like, goal now you're far away from the life that you you led before where would you both want to be have you got an end goal i i want to get a book out yeah definitely we've got to do a book yeah yeah we're gonna have his own story as one book definitely yeah. it'd do so well yeah where do you see yourself what do you want to do is there anything like have you got a to-do list or like in well he calls me the robot because i just don't stop i've got about five more books that i'm working on presently in the pipeline and I'm, five he does too much though he doesn't he doesn't no just rest doesn't start no i mean literally from here now he's gonna go to cumbria and he's gonna in, in between he actually does skype from his phone and does interviews on his phone while in the car while driving i love that though that's so good just completely just on the ball all the time and so you just do the podcast don't you i just do the pod criminal podcast mainly yeah all the books are available worldwide on amazon yeah audio ebook and paperback get subscribing as well please subscribe to our channels you've had, you've had subscribe to Ellen's channel. yeah, if you definitely. want wildlands t-shirt go to everpress.com What's that? Got t-shirts out with my face on I it. I need to see it. Definitely. <laughs> should have brought one, shouldn't we? I know, I forgot. Slipping. Next time, pick you one. Next time, see you one. Definitely yeah. do. Right, guys, thank you so, so much for coming. You're welcome. And thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye. You can download Helen Wood Chats to wherever you listen to your podcast. But for exclusive, interactive, immersive content, download the Entail app for iOS and Android. If you like what you heard, please rate and review my podcast and help other listeners to discover us too. This is a Laudable production for the Manchester Evening News. You can check out Laudable on both Twitter and Instagram. Don't forget to check out my Twitter, Instagram and YouTube pages. Thanks, guys. <laughs>